I'm Kate Daniels. If we find ourselves seeking more fulfillment, I believe that we're going to find the inspiration and answers from this special guest, Dr. Stephen G. Post, author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Dr. Stephen G. Post, good morning. Many thanks for taking time to be with us this morning. Hello, Kate. It's good to be with you. This is so wonderful and timely, although my feeling is the time would be perfect anytime just by the nature of this book, God and Love on Route 80, or is it Route 80? Well, whatever is your preference. <laughs> okay. The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. That just is so powerful and just touches me deeply to my soul. And the fact that here we are in December, this time of great celebration of light and love, it seems so appropriate. But my feeling is it would be appropriate any day of the year, any year. So many thanks for being here and for writing this incredible book. Well, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun doing it. And this book is part memoir, uh, maybe a lot memoir, as well as so much philosophy thrown into it, right? Absolutely. It's a series of 12 episodes of incredible synchronicity, those uncanny moments in life when everything seems so perfectly set up that you really strongly have a sense that we are more cherished by a higher power than we know. And you began to have this awareness or the beginnings of the awareness at a very young age. Well, that's right. I went to St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire. Back in the day, I was about uh, 13 when I showed up there. But I was very interested in spiritual literature uh, from a young age. And believe it or not, uh, I had a dream when I was 15, and that shaped my life and that's why the book is called God and Love on Route 80. You had the beginnings of this awareness at a young age. Many of us may or we may not, but the fact is this is not because you are some special individual. We need to be aware, and I think what you are here to do and what you've written about is for us to be just more in touch and aware of what goes on in our own lives. Yeah, I wrote it so that we could all notice these winks and whispers that suggest that there's a lot more uh, cherishing in the universe than sometimes we understand, even though obviously we all go through difficult times and great challenges, but there is some sort of integrating uh, universal mind, some would call it, you can call it infinite mind or supreme being or ultimate reality, whatever you particularly want to call it, uh, whatever your tradition, but there is this source of integrating love that sometimes just brings us together in the perfect way, the perfect time with the perfect person uh, in answer to sometimes a prayer, a moment of desperation or whatever. And what is so interesting and fascinating is in this journey your life journey, it's taken you into the field of medicine where there's a part of that that, of course, is fundamental to us, our health, our good health, and being able to, I feel, teach others, because as a professor, you have that opportunity to make us more aware of ourselves and how we touch others and are all just part of this larger picture of life. Well, that's right. I've been teaching in medical schools for, believe it or not, about 35 years, Chicago, Ann Arbor, 20 years at Case Med, and now I'm at Stony Brook. 
you know, I teach communication, empathic care, attentive listening, uh, the importance of connecting with patients in terms of their outcomes and their well-being and their adherence to difficult treatments, especially under chronic conditions. But I also, uh, God and Love on Route 80, not something I offer in a medical school, but it opens the door to the possibility that there is a mystery to the human mind, that mind is not just local, the product of cells and tissues and brain and so forth, but somewhat following uh, Carl Jung and, and Larry Dossey, who wrote a beautiful book called One Mind. This is about these uncanny, surprising moments that just seem too perfectly set up to be attributable uh, only to luck. So it's something more than luck. And I tell these stories and uh, have a heck of a wonderful time doing it. And in this process, what we then discover and how it permeates out is these are experiences of that connectedness. And as the title says, God and love on Route 80, that piece of love and we know we also will say God is love, so that's interchangeable. That love part of it is so critical here, whether it's medical school, whether it's just our daily interactions with each other. If we experience that love individually and really embrace it, don't we then see each of us doing that, it creating this more loving and peaceful, harmonious world? Yeah, we all benefit from it. Uh, you know, I had a best-selling book about 10 years ago called Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Happier, Healthier, Longer Life by the Simple Act of Giving. There is always that connection. Uh, as a generalization, there might be some exceptions, but people do experience what we call the giver's glow, or I sometimes say give and glow. They, by national surveys, uh, feel more peaceful, more tranquil, more resilient, more able to manage loss and disappointment, physically healthier, they have deeper friendships, they find life more meaningful when they devote at least a certain amount of their time and energy to contributing meaningfully to the lives of others. Again, that's not the direct intent, these kinds of indirect benefits, but as a side effect or a byproduct, they're very real. And I've spent about uh, 20 years of my life measuring these uh, very carefully and publishing papers in a lot of premier medical journals, so much so that now in a lot of clinical environments, in adolescent psychiatry, for example, clinicians will recommend that young people get involved in some volunteer activity for a few hours a week. You see this in the Bay Area in geriatric clinics. They're encouraging older adults to volunteer. Again, a few hours a week is all it takes, but these things do make a big difference in terms of people's resilience, their well-being, their wellness, and ultimately even gives them a little boost on length of life. So none of that is anything we'd want to dispute. It all feels like such a good thing. But as you mentioned, it's not that it's all just going to be feel good because we do have our peaks and valleys in life. Uh, that is generally the life condition. Well, that's true. And the best way to deal with it, we all have disappointments. We all have tremendous losses. We also ruminate. We get caught up in hostile and destructive emotions, which are very damaging with regard to protracted stress and high levels of cortisol and slowing wound healing and uh, hippocampal atrophy and all kinds of things. But the best way to break out of that, I know there are a lot of easy uh, how-to books, 
But the bottom line is that we need to put our minds not on the self and the problems of the self, but we need to simply take action, compassionate action, to help others, again, uh, at reasonable levels that we can fit into our lives. And through that practice, over time, those negative emotional pathways dissipate. They simply are no longer active. There's a lot of really conclusive brain science these days that when you're even thinking compassionately about how to help other people, it elevates what's called the mesolimbic pathway, a deeply emotional part of the brain that's associated with feelings of happiness and fulfillment and meaning and even doles out one of the really important happiness chemicals, dopamine, that's going on. But at the same time, it turns off, shuts down all the negative brain pathways associated with hostility, anger, bitterness, and so forth. And we know that if those are turned on, the health effects are very negative. So there are the benefits of helping others uh, just on their own terms, but it also has the effect of moving us away uh, from these negative emotional uh, axes to things that are much more healthy and beneficial to others, but also to us. It's such an important message for us for every single day of our lives to really to make the most of our lives. And, and yes, to overcome some of those low times, we know that this is like the prescription of what we can do to come out of that. And it's not a, a quick fix, an instant pill, but it, it has the, the same kind of result just with our focus on it. Yeah, Rx, it's good to be good. I think that's the story. And it does take time. Time heals too. Uh, you know, as you become more distant in time from a real difficult hurt, I'm not talking about simple, trivial things, but really the challenging moments where you just have so much hurt. The way to manage that is is to get involved in helping others find a meaningful constituency, something that floats your boat, that uses your gifts and talents so that you can feel you're making a difference. And the other important thing, we actually have about 1,700 volunteers at our hospital, and many of them do this because they've had some challenges in their lives. Let them get together and debrief, talk with one another, form community around these helpful activities. When they do that, whether they're kids in high school doing service-based learning or older adults, it's very, very good for them. But I have to tell you something funny, Kate, if I might. So we did an article about widows and widowers who were grieving after many years of very happy marriage. That's the caveat, happy, fulfilling, gratifying <laughs> marriage. And what we found out is that they got through this process more quickly and also in a more enduring fashion if they could self-report that on a weekly basis they were being helpful to others, helpful in the neighborhood, maybe helpful through their spiritual or faith communities and whatever. So we wrote a really good article on this, and I got a call from the New York Society of Widows and Widowers. There is such a thing. <laughs> and they wanted me to do a plenary address, so I went into this hotel in Manhattan, and uh, there were about 2,000 people there, and I talked about this, and then we had time for question and answer. So there was a guy in the back of this big hall, and he was raising his hand. He was frantically waving his hands in the air, and I said, yes, sir. And he said to me, and this is a quote, he said, I don't care what you say, buddy. I don't do nothing for nothing. <laughs> and I realized, you know, some people, they're so into this pay it back, you know, uh, reciprocal gain calculation and so forth. 
that if you prove to, to the end of the, of the year that there are these internal benefits that really don't but depend on reciprocal actions, but they're just there if you freely help others, uh, you know, he just couldn't believe that because somehow it was against his view of the universe. But the bottom line is that it's good to be good, and science says it's so. Yes. And he obviously, and others like him, have a lesson to learn. It may take them time. So we realize we have a choice, you know, observe this. This is what is a, a wonderful opportunity with these conversations, with reading a book such as God and Love on Route 80, is to experience the stories and realize, ah, I've had something like this, or let me consider how that affects my life. Yeah, there's choice in our life. Well, there is, and we're always making choices. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that in the giving of self lies the unsought discovery of a deeper self. You may think that I'm the center of the universe and I only relate to people to the extent that they fulfill my little desires and no further, but when you get away from that and you realize, no, I'm not the center of the universe, and you honor and you love people as ends in themselves, there's still an I, but it's a deeper and enriched, a healthier, a much more flourishing I. And by the way, I'll give you my definition of love, if I could, since you mentioned the word. Yes. When the happiness and security of another is as real to me, and sometimes more so than my own, I love that person. And that holds, there's no fancy ancient language there, but you know, it holds whether you're looking out over a child in a crib or a grandchild in a crib or having a quiet cup of coffee in Seattle with an old friend who's had some hard times or someone who's been treated badly and they just need some compassion. There's a lot to be said uh, simply for thinking about the happiness and the security of others as being as meaningful as your own. There's still an I, there's still a me. It's not that we're talking about you know self-immolation or radical self-denial or something over the top like that, but it's just that when we move our center of being and we connect with others more meaningfully at that level, we are just definitely going to flourish. And taking that time to listen, and it doesn't have to be hours and hours, it, it could be, as you said, over a cup of coffee, just really devoting ourselves with clear intent just to listen and be present. And be mindfully present, meaning not distracted yes. and not caught up in the chronological pressures of running from point A to point B, so people kind of feel like you're there, but you're not really there, you know? Yes. Uh, the sort of grab-and-go thing. Uh, but being mindfully present is really important. We teach that to the medical students, you know, that with your patients, you've got to be mindfully present. And the patients can pick that up. They give the students feedback about it. And so the students have a chance to really think deeply about, you know, are they really connecting with people? And it doesn't take a lot of time. You know, that's the mistaken idea. It's actually something you can do relatively quickly, but if you do it well and intentionally and sincerely, it will make all the difference in the world with regard to patient adherence to treatment with uh, all kinds of things in mind. It's a very healthy thing to do for others, but it's also great for you because you get out of all those kinds of destructive emotional uh, pits and you're not being pulled down into this negative vortex of bitterness. 
And it can be more of a challenge to us these days because the benefits of all our technology, i.e. all of our cell devices, can really be a distraction. But if we could silence that to just take that time to be present, mindfully present, I, I love that phrase, that makes all the difference. Yeah, so, you know, I come to work these days. I probably have 200, 300 emails a day. I think probably everybody does. And I could spend the entire day responding to emails. It, it just never ends. And my computer doesn't realize that I'm a human being, not a machine, right? Right. <laughs> so that's a real problem. So we, we really have to get a handle on this. And it's an issue for, uh, there's actually a wonderful woman in uh, Seattle who we actually hired here at Stony Brook Med four or five years ago. Her name is Delaney Rustin, MD. She's a physician, Stanford graduate, and uh, she did a beautiful, beautiful video called Screenagers about raising adolescents on screens. And, you know, it's had some very negative consequences, so we're not really connecting with each other. It's not good for anxiety and, and happiness. It can be overdone, and we need to begin to get a, some control over it, but in every family, these things are very difficult to manage and they can cause a whole lot of conflict. But I was at a fresh restaurant with a friend of mine named Nick Dungan, who had also gone to St. Paul's years ago. And we were watching a three-generational family having dinner uh, just at the table next to us. And the two little kids, they were like five and six, they were totally locked in to their iPads for the whole hour and a half. And there was grandma and grandpa and their parents there talking. And the kids didn't have any contact with their parents or grandparents at all. And my friend Nick whispered in my ear, he said, is this the end of civilization? Because all the things that are meaningful, you know, learning to be kind, gratitude, forgiveness, empathy, presence, all these things, these things are passed on from generation to generation. You don't learn them from a lecture, but you have role models who can bring them into your life in a very real way. And you pay attention to the details of tone of voice and facial expression. So there's no substitute for that passing of the torch from generation to generation. But I do think that nowadays when a lot of young people want wisdom, you know, they go to the latest software. And that's the challenge. That's why Steve Jobs didn't allow his kids to play around much with computers. And I, by the way, encountered him as a student at Reed College long ago. But certainly this is a big concern for everybody. And Atul Gawande wrote a great article in The New Yorker about six months ago, Why Doctors Hate Screens. <laughs> because they come into the office and all they're doing for about half the time is they're doing the electronic medical records and they're staring at screens and they're not getting enough meaningful interaction with patients. They didn't come to medical school for a desk job. And it's really creating a lot of demoralization among physicians. And so we have to deal with that a lot and try to figure ways around it, but it's a big problem. And especially in this medical field where we were talking about teaching the medical uh, students to be mindfully present, but when you've got that screen there flickering at you and you have to enter the data, yes, it's quite a balancing challenge. Yeah, it is. I went to an ophthalmologist the other day, and he was very good. So the computer was against the wall, and he had his back turned toward me, and he was asking me questions. But right away, he actually spun around on in his chair he said, you know, look, uh, Dr. Post, I'm really sorry, but I have to do this for about three or four minutes and just enter this information. And I know it's not very uh, empathic or kind, but just give me a little while and then I'll give you my undivided attention, which he did. 
And I felt pretty good about that because he explained what was going on and I didn't feel disregarded. Great way to handle something like that. And Mm -hmm. thinking about the scenario with the three generations at the table and and the children sitting there, yes, they would probably have a bit of a fit initially to tell them, you know, those have no place at the table. They're not learning by just modeling how to be present and to learn from the other generations. But If they don't give themselves that openness, it's not going to happen. So as the adults, we have a responsibility. Oh, yeah. And even in the home now, such a pressure on parents. A lot of times, there really isn't much of a family meal. It's just kind of grab and go. It's like rushing into McDonald's, picking something up and taking off. And it's such a different world. Uh, So just FYI, my my grandfather, Edwin Mainpost, married a woman named Emily who wrote etiquette books. And it was all about, hello, how are you? You're welcome. Thank you. It's all about face-to-face interactions and learning the basics of kindness. And you only pick that up uh, from others. And it's all in the details. You know, um, Aristotle said, goodness is in the details. It's in those little things that people say, little things they do, the way they handle themselves. Again, you know, the tone of voice, even the look in their eyes, you know, of love and kindness and generosity and, and the things that you just pick up from these unbelievably important role models. But to some degree, you know, in our society, unless you really have a good community, now there are a lot of people who have good communities. They might be spiritual communities. They might be other kinds of communities. They might be great non-parent mentors, the great schools, who knows. But there is a sense in which we've lost, you know, some of this really deep interaction that occurs believe it or not, at the table. And in many spiritual traditions, uh, you know, whether it's Hindu or whether it's Judaism or whatever it might be, uh, Christianity, there's a whole lot of writing about how to interact at the table. And it's not just etiquette, you know, it's not just, okay, you know, let's mind our manners. But it's really about having a space and an opportunity and even a sacred moment to interact, to be grateful for food, to express gratitude and kindness and a gentle curiosity about the lives of others and just to get free of all the world around us. And that, that is something that we really need because uh, so many young people without it are suffering from anxiety and depression. And, uh, you know, you want to know the major predictor of whether an adolescent will abuse alcohol or become opioid addicted Uh, Well, there are two. One is adverse childhood experiences, and the second one is, do they have a sense of purpose in life? If they have a sense of purpose in life, they can avoid these pitfalls. But if they don't, they're very susceptible. And that problem can be solved, not just, you know, throwing some lecture at them, but by creating a community of purpose, of kindness, that leans out and does good for some needful, identifiable constituencies whoever they might be. The studies on raising a kind child, which we've done some of, are very, very important. They're actually in the God Love on Route 80 book. But one is, you know, have a little cultural center. Take your kids, parents, kids, and write down just even six or seven key words. Kindness, forgiveness, creativity, whatever it might be. I mean, it can differ from family to family. Honesty, and just tack that up on the wall in the living room or put it on the, the refrigerator. And when you have some sort of issue to talk about because things have been a little bit awkward, convene everyone together and just talk respectfully as a family 
even with young kids, about these things. And this is absolutely demonstrated by the science. The other thing is parents have to watch the screaming. There's a book called Scream-Free Parenting that came out a couple of years ago. It's pretty interesting because it points out that 98% of us parents scream bloody murder at our kids at certain points, and then we feel very badly about it afterwards. We should try to avoid that. And the other thing is family volunteering. That is the most important thing. So don't just volunteer as an individual, but find something that your family can be motivated by that really, again, floats their boat And just for even a couple of hours a week as a family, do something for others together. That creates so much community, so much meaning, so much purpose. Kids become really proud of being a part of their family instead of just kind of, you know, dissy, if you will. That's a short word for disrespect, you know. (laughs) But those kinds of things are very, very important. And also stick with it. So this Harvard study from the Harvard School of Education shows that parents, oh, yeah, we all want to raise kind kids up oh, until they get to be about 12 or 13. <laughs> and then that kind of disappears because it's all about, okay, you got to have this success and that success. And then we're paying off the crew coaches at Yale and, and the volleyball mm. coaches at other universities, you know, so that little Johnny or little Judy can get into these schools. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes. So we have to emphasize kindness, especially in the adolescent years, because that one is when it makes all the difference. I mean, we demonstrated in this beautiful study that goes all the way back to the late 1920s at Berkeley, they took 12-year-old kids and they asked them, what floats your boat? 300 of these kids, 100 of them said, well, I want to use my talents to help humanity. I want to make a difference in the lives of others. Then those Berkeley researchers, they followed those kids all over the course of their life. Every 10 years, they had these extensive interviews and questionnaires, and they found out that of that 100 who really felt somehow that they wanted to help others, Number one, they were much less susceptible to midlife physical illnesses. And the other thing is they were much less susceptible to depression and anxiety disorders. And now there are only about 40 of them who are still alive because they're, you know, they're really on in years. But believe it or not, Kate, two-thirds of the ones who are still alive come from the one-third who is 12-year-old said, I want to use my gifts to help other people. I don't have a model for it. But I'll just say that there's something about this attitude, if you can create it early in life and just say, well, you know, I'm not going to give my kids up to their hormones, that you can do things and involve them as a family or as a faith community, that you can do things that bring them into this culture. It will provide a protective halo that will follow them all of their lives. Now, there are exceptions. There are kids who hit 20 and they get in some fatal accident or they have a terrible uh, case of Hodgkin's lymphoma or whatever it might be. But as a general rule, it's good to be good. And if you can get this going in a person's life while they're young, it's a huge benefit. And there we have this incredible philosophy of yours, which we didn't really get into details of the book, but it permeates the pages of God and Love on Route 80. And it certainly is just the essence of what we would really choose to have in our life and we want to pass on, as you said, Dr. Post. And so with that, we do have to be closing our time together, but we should mention your website where there is a wealth of information. Yeah, so two websites. One is Stephen with a PH and then G like Gary, Stephen G Post, P-O-S-T dot com. And the other one, it's an institute that I founded with the late Sir John Templeton, the famous philanthropist who left all his money to study and set up institutes around the world on kindness and forgiveness and gratitude and the like. He named it. 
It's called unlimitedloveinstitute.org. And he had in mind this kind of feeling of love that sometimes we experience. It almost seems like it's deeper than anything we humans could come up with, but it's just that spiritual feeling of of a deeper present love in this universe that can sweep into our hearts and minds, and suddenly we can look at another human being, even if we're not particularly friendly with them or we don't even know them, and we just feel the infinite value of their very being. This has been just the most wonderful conversation to have and share as a year winds up, and definitely as we you know think about a new year and we want to make changes, this is great inspiration. I got a New Year's quote for you, though. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's from Eleanor Roosevelt. That tells you my era. And the quote that I love so much, and it's so relevant to God and love on Route 80, because it begins with an adolescent dream. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Ah, yes. I do love that one as well. Just perfect. And this has just been a perfect gift. I thank you so greatly for who you are and for your presence in our world, Dr. Stephen Post. Thank, Thank you, Katie. It's been a pleasure to be with you.